Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. The greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself, Dr. Joe Miller. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so Prost to you. So stop for a second and listen. Not silent at all. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Penis Project. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Joe Milios, and we're going to interview her about her PhD research, which was around prostate cancer. So, welcome, Joe. What does it feel like to be on the receiving end instead of the interviewing end? I'm a little bit nervous, actually, Melissa. <laughs> I know that we've been talking about doing this podcast for a little while, and um, yeah, somewhat hesitant. Um, initially, but very glad to be finally doing this today. Great. So what I wanted to ask you first is why did you decide to do the research? And I suppose we should actually talk about what the name of your research is. So I'm going to read it off this very large book that you've left sitting on the desk. It's called The Therapeutic Interventions for Patients with Prostate Cancer Undergoing Radical Prostatectomy, a Focus on Urinary Incontinence, Erectile Function and Peyronie's Disease. So what made you decide to do this? Well, it's really interesting uh, having had the opportunity to work in a new urology clinic and to see the patients that were coming through who were first of all exposed to having prostate cancer diagnosed and then treated with the open radical prostatectomy. And this was way back in 2005. And this was when I had the opportunity to originally do some work in clinic with my brother. And what we basically um, noted was that men who had a little bit of pelvic floor training and education before they had their operation actually did much better than those guys who had no preparation time. And ironically, these were country patients, so patients that came in um, for like a preoperative consult that spent a whole morning um, getting screened for the medical side of it, and we just did a little bit of preoperative pelvic floor training. We found that um, the city guys were just getting to see me postoperatively. But, yeah, there was quite a difference in um, continence rates and recovery was much, much quicker in those guys that had um, a month or so training. And then we just started seeing a trend, and the trend was very much the same. And after a few hundred patients, it came quite obvious to me that if we um, did a very specific pelvic floor muscle training program that was aligned to the clinical presentations, Um, where most men had this leakage when they were moving rather than when they were lying down or sitting down. So uh, basically through the gaps in um, research where we really didn't know for sure whether or not pelvic floor muscle training was uh, 
the appropriate thing to do because the evidence was lacking. I wasn't particularly keen to do research myself because I very much like working with people and the whole academic world was not terribly appealing to me. But fortunately, I worked out a way to fuse the two things together. So to answer your question, why did I do the research? It was because I stumbled across a gap. Yeah. And then noted through clinical experimenting with patients that we found a way of not only doing the exercise correctly, but also in a way that aligned with the symptoms that seemed to be really quite quick at um, getting the uh, positive continence control back. And because it hadn't been proved in research, it seemed a logical thing to do. And so what was different about the program you're getting people to do in your research than what people were getting to do previously? But it actually started with the assessment. So the very first part of my research was to try and encourage um, doctors, I guess, and, and physiotherapists that we didn't necessarily need to assess the male pelvic floor for men undergoing radical prostatectomy um, with the digital rectal approach. So the finger up the bum uh, test for the prostate is a routine examination or was at the time. Um, and it was similarly for physiotherapists assessing pelvic floor mu muscle function to actually do the finger at the bottom test and say uh, to a patient in a lying down position usually um, to gently squeeze my finger as a physiotherapist and for me to give it a mark out of five. Can I just say something? Exactly. If I turned up at the physiotherapist and they put on a glove and were going to think they were putting their finger in my bum, I'd be a little bit shocked. I imagine most people would. Well, back in 2005, and to many countries today, that is the routine standard mm. test for assessing male pelvic floor function. So around about 2008, uh, there became um, trans-abdominal ultrasound proven in um, female pelvic floor function that you could do something called a trans-abdominal um, test where you just put a little probe on the belly um, of a female and you could actually look at imaging, which we call real-time, so you could get a patient to contract and relax their pelvic floor and literally see it. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a breakthrough, and it, and it was actually showing that um, it was more effective to do this because um, you've got that visual feedback on the assessment. And then it was just a little bit um, later before that was proven in males to be oh, helpful. Okay. And then that research um, went from transabdominal to what we call transperineal, so actually placing the, the probe between the legs of the man in a, in a very discreet fashion, but all of it being external rather than yeah. internal. So for men who don't know what the perineum is, I read an interesting explanation of it. I always explain the perineum as the bit between the bottom of the testicles and where the anus starts, mm -hmm. but I did read the other day in a book, it called it the taint, and I was like, what is that? And so it taint your balls and it taint your asshole. it's the bit in between. <laughs> I thought it was great. I haven't heard of the taint. No, I hadn't heard of the taint either. So my son and his younger mates call that area of their body, God knows why they have a name for it, the gooch. The gooch. The yep. gooch. The gooch. The gooch. But the yep. taint, that was a new one. The things that we learn from our patients, I know, and our children. So what I wanted to do was show that we had a, a functional way of assessing the pelvic floor rather than um, the digital examination, but to do this with the ultrasound probe. So what I did was I got men to do pelvic floor exercises in standing and in lying and 
then I made up two tests, one called the rapid response test, which was to see how quickly men could contract their pelvic floor. And that was a, a way of trying to get a reflex developed so that men, if they coughed or sneezed or moved from sitting to standing, had a faster reaction time. So simply that's a test that says um, perform 10 maximal full contractions and relaxations as quickly as you can and then time it. And what I was looking for was to do 10 rapid contractions in under 10 seconds and preferably 8 seconds or less. This is something that would be done on a stopwatch. And then secondly, to assess how long a man could actually hold their pelvic floor for. Because that's an important function we may need to literally get to the toilet. And that was a test of endurance. And we called that the sustained endurance test or the SEP test. So that was simply performing one of these pelvic floor exercises mm -hmm. and holding for up to one minute. And again, we could do that with a stopwatch contraction um, or stopwatch test of looking at the contraction and then seeing whether or not if it started to weaken or fade, we could see that on the screen as well as a man could actually feel it at the same time. So I would stop the um, clock at the point of what we called exhaustion. But we were aiming for a one-minute hold with that. So essentially it was let's try and make the assessment easier and to do this in positions that might be more relevant to the actual leakage when it occurred. So preferentially I would assess a man on first day in standing using his tummy, so his the trans-abdominal approach. And then if he wasn't getting the technique correct, then I would move to what we call the transperineal, or that gooch or taint position. A little bit more complex to do and a little bit more um, difficult to understand from the feedback of the patient as well. Um, but, yeah, the, the fact is that we can use those tests that I developed for training mm -hmm. as well as a benchmark for improvement. So number one was pelvic floor muscle assessment. Yeah. We got that published in the Australian New Zealand Continence Journal in 2018 and then 2019 in two separate papers. And we'll have all the links to the, any papers Joe talks about in the show notes. And then number two was actually showing that the protocols that I developed for men were actually more beneficial than what we had pre currently existing. And the problem is in the research is it said that there's been too many variables to be able to accurately say, yes, this is a, um ideal technique. And that's because in the past they were doing that assessment by the rectum when in actual fact men were leaking from the urinary sphincter. Yeah. So yeah. there was always conjecture on whether or not we would be getting the best accurate advice. So now after you finish your PhD, you can confidently move forward and say to patients, this is the best program to get Absolutely. you the driest the quickest. Yep. Okay. So that so that was your aim, wasn't it? Was to yep. get that. Yep. Yeah. And then to, to then perform the um, contractions in both the rapid mm -hmm. or fast twitch fibres. So the pelvic floor is not just lifting and holding. Traditionally, the programs were just lift and hold for up to 10 seconds, often squeezing the back passage first rather than the front passage. And we needed to, to change mm -hmm. that um, cueing as well. So we were localising on what was more important for continence control for the urine uh, dysfunction that occurred in surgery. And since you've changed over to this method, you've found a quicker improvement, haven't you, in your continence yeah, patients? Yeah, so absolutely as what I was hoping from my clinical body of work, which was about a 10-year um, sort of investigation, I was able to show in research that doing that combination of fast slow and slow twitch fibre holding, so the quick 10 and then the holding 10 for up to 10 seconds in standing mostly, repeating that up to six times a day 
um, was far more effective than doing the traditional program, which was based on female anatomy, yeah. based on the rectal um, squeeze in pressure, and to only do that three times a day. And the, the three sets a day was one set in sitting, one set in standing, and one set in lying. And, um, you know, we, we were able to show quite convincingly that if we did on average a, a five-week leading time between having the prostate cancer diagnosed and the surgery, that five-week leading time of training was really effective if we compared that high-intensity program compared to just the, the standard one. And we were able to show that if you did what I developed clinically um, six sets a day, so that was 10 quick, 10 slow, and spread out over the day in standing, that one in six men were never incontinent from the very beginning of the post-op time versus one in 25 who did the um, traditional program, just wow. three sets a day. So it was an amazing difference in the results. So any of you who have just started listening to the, Pon the Penis Podcast, Project Podcast, there's um, in episode four, Joe actually goes through exactly, like gets you to stand up and go through exactly how to do these exercises so you can feel free to go back to episode four. So you didn't just look at urinary incontinence, you also looked at erectile dysfunction and Peroni's disease. So tell us a little bit about that. So the erectile dysfunction was actually my main motivation uh, for doing the PhD in actual fact. And that was because I felt really confident clinically that I could, you know, help most men um, with the continent side of it. But there was a missing gap, a very big gap in the conversations on sexual function. And that in actual fact, the urologists weren't overly interested either in that particular topic. And I even had three or four urologists personally write to me and say, look, we're not... Um, very keen for you to continue the conversations around erectile function in your patients and in our patients that we share because men are not interested in their sexual function. And I used to scratch my head and think, well, that's not the conversations I'm having with my patients. And it was quite a fight for probably seven years to, to get that uh, conversation happening in a typical urology consultation for the majority of surgeons. So not all surgeons were reluctant, but I'd say, you know, three-quarters of them were to wow. even entertain that sexual function. And what I knew was um, from the work of Professor Grace Story that she was pioneering in showing that pelvic floor exercise training in men without prostate cancer and that had erectile dysfunction, things like premature ejaculation, could be actually um, greatly improved or, in fact, cured by doing three sets of pelvic floor exercises a day. And that was based on the older technology of rectal examinations as well. But I thought, you know, if we can have this sort of outcome in everyday patients, well, we know that erectile dysfunction is a massive issue in anyone undergoing prostate cancer, um, particularly surgery, because we impact on the, the nerve function immediately, that, yeah, the, the focus should see if we can, you know, escalate that to the erectile function of men with prostate cancer, because we anticipate, you know, 99% of men to have erectile dysfunction that, that only 20, 25% of men gain their function back after a couple of years. So once again, a, a gap. So what did you find that when you got them doing this program, what sort of changes did you see in their erectile function? Well, straight away, um, those men, so in the continence outcomes, three in four men were completely drying out of pads within um, 12 weeks of surgery. Mm -hmm. So those guys were already engaging in sexual activity earlier because they were drier and they weren't, you know, with that embarrassment um, dealing with so much leakage and their quality of life was automatically, um, you know, significantly elevated course, compared to yeah. those men who were leaking a lot. So 
that was a really important outcome. What we also showed was that after six months, you, there was superior erectile function in those men who did the high-intensity um, exercise program versus the lower one, which was a three-month um, intervention or program. But we didn't show that men had improved erectile function, that is the hardness of the, you know, the penis in the first three months, which I was a little bit disappointed about because I actually thought that if the continence improved so quickly within the first three months, that potentially the erectile function would also single-handedly improve just from the pelvic floor training program. However, I only kind of um, realised after the fact that it does take from everyone else's research at least three or four months for the nerve mm. inflammation to start to settle down from the surgery. So in actual fact, if I'd shown a significant result which was far superior, it probably would have contradicted everyone else's research. Mm. But um, the good the good thing was that from the quality of life aspect, more men and women engaged in sexual activity. They were keener to do penile rehabilitation. Of course, rehabilitation. because they were dry. They were six times more likely to be having sex or attempting sexual activity versus the, the guys who didn't um, have that intense program. And that by six months, when we, you know, continued looking at all of our data, yeah, there was a, a much better outcome for those guys. Yeah. So overall, um, we were able to publish a paper in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in May of 2020 that basically said pelvic floor exercise should be the first line of um, therapy in erectile dysfunction uh, and because we want to do it for continence anyway, it's like a two-for-one definitely um, bonus. So mm. that was really pleasing, and we called it like an ad adjunct to penile rehabilitation anyway. The beauty of pelvic floor exercises, you can do them anywhere, anytime, and they can sort of, I like to say to guys, just be added into what you have to do in a compulsory day activity like brushing your teeth, having a shower, mm. walking to the toilet, just try and you know integrate it with what comes as a compulsory thing rather than another to-do list at yeah. the end of the day. And so you also, and we have talked about your research in Peronius disease in previous episodes yeah. because we've interviewed guys that, you, that were involved in that study and you had amazing outcomes. So do you want to just briefly tell us what your research was to do with the Peronius disease and what the outcomes were? Okay, well, to be honest, Melissa, I'm always reluctant to use the word amazing when it comes to... <laughs> Um, anything health related because I always think of it as those current affair shows that you yeah. know, flash something up but um, what happened was and I have shared this a little bit before and we had um, Paul as mm. our um, earlier episode I think that was episode five and Paul was the first patient that actually had uh, Peroni's disease arrive out of his radical prostatectomy and he was the one that sort of instigated me to looking into it and what I found was that about 10% of men actually experience Peroni's disease, which is not just a curvature of the penis, but it could be any physical deformity that's a change um, to a man's sort of physical appearance that occurs with erections. And this includes even pain. So there can be some onset of pain during the process of filling or expansion of the um, blood vessels. And so in my research, I was able to show that uh, therapeutic ultrasound, that's the sort of ultrasound that physios use for musculoskeletal or soft tissue injuries anyway, it was really helpful in reducing what we call plaques or fibrosis in the penis, which actually occur in this population because of reduced blood flow because of all that erectile dysfunction that naturally happens. So 
I was able to do a random control trial on 46 men that showed about 70% of the time there was improvement in um, not only the plaque size, so that reduced, but that the um, blood flow improved and any curvature or penile deformity improved. But it didn't fix everybody. And that led me to the opportunity then to work on something called extracorporeal shockwave therapy um, in more recent times. And that's actually applying shockwave, something called focus shockwave, not radial shockwave, to those plaques. And that's really helpful for those guys who've had it a much longer period of time or when it's more calcified or harder plaques. That's generally when it's been there a lot longer and the ultrasound cannot penetrate that. But I've had that paper published too. Um, the therapeutic ultrasound paper in August of 2020. So we'll have links to that one. So I think from when I read that paper, the take-home message for me on that was is the sooner a guy gets treatment when they notice a change in their penis, the Mm. better. So, you know, it's better not to leave, is that right, these plaques for a long period of time because for for your ultrasound to work. Exactly. And that's sort of probably been a little bit of a stumbling block in even having acceptance of the research because... Clearly, when you're identifying a problem, um, some of those guys in the trial didn't benefit at all, and that's because they actually had the hard plaques. So I was able to show quite convincingly that if a, if, if a man has calcified plaques bigger than about five or half a millimetre, um, that it, it wouldn't actually um, be helpful. So 0.5 of a millimetre or bigger plaques that we can actually see and measure on something called penile Doppler scans were less likely to respond. Um, So, you know, some of the urologists um, are still saying to patients, you know, this is not a working therapy. But that's because traditionally urologists have approached it with a wait and see. So they'll Mm -hmm. say, look, at the moment, there's really not a lot we can do, but come back in six to 12 months and we'll review it again. In the meantime, you can try this medication or that medication. But what happens then is it really starts to impact on the headspace of a guy with a bent or indented penis, and they really start to get a lot of psychological distress. So the physiotherapy approach is all very much about identifying an injury early, and then uh, just like uh, Prince did in one of our earlier episodes, having the opportunity to have the ultrasound therapy provided um, within about six weeks of um, having the problem onset. That led to him having three ultrasound sessions with me that completely resolved the pain and started to um, reduce the inflammation and size the plaque. And then we did a, a further three shockwave sessions which sort of blasted the area of the uh, tissue that was changing and he had a complete restoration of the situation. Now, normally those guys would be told, can't do anything about this, come back in six months. But as Prince talked about, he went into a spiral of great distress and um you know, really start to affect him mentally, and that's when his mum, um, Penelope, came into the equation to help her son. So we, we, you know, we are very new in this field, but a bit like what I explored in the clinical experiences of the prostate cancer patients in continence, over time you learn a lot from working with patients, and we're fortunate that we have so many, um, you know, young guys or, or men coming in to... Um, initiate this themselves through their GP. So GPs are getting on board and we now have a body of evidence that says, yes, we should start sooner. Yeah, and hopefully it'll get out there in the general public and more people will get help 
because so if anyone wants to listen to the episodes particularly on Peroni's disease, we have two people's stories and they are episode six and episode seven. So all of this, you identified some gaps in the research and that was with these harder calcified mm-hmm. lumps. Yep. And so that's where you're moving to next, isn't it, to try and see if shock, how shockwave will go with these. Yeah, so um, we've got uh, quite a few clinical case studies now and we would like to actually do research on that. One of the difficulties is um, when you're a clinician like me, um, you get to find problems that you see commonly so you apply a body of your clinical kind of reasoning and rationale and then the next thing that's necessary to make it mainstream therapy is to go and do research so as I said earlier I was much more of a a natural physiotherapy clinician rather than a researcher but learnt the art of research but you know my research was to conduct over seven years Mm. um, part-time while I was working mostly full-time you know, with a family and running a business and that sort of thing. So a lot of the people who work in the field, they don't actually go and, you know, commit themselves to doing research. And, you know, the academic world is also a little bit um, distanced from having hands-on with patients too. So it's quite challenging to um, produce research. And I think that's probably one of the stumbling blocks into why, like I was told originally, it would take 17 years for whatever I produced become mainstream practice because we have academic journals but academics tend to read the exactly um, and that's why doing things like podcasts and and giving the information to you know the everyday person is a way of helping that research have a wider reach definitely because i think as you say only really academics or other health professionals read medical academic journals Mm. and so how do people find out what is really going on and i think also, it's going to be more and more difficult to do research because of the way our universities are funded now. I mean, that's another whole, you know, bag of worms, isn't it? There's so much problem with funding at the moment in Australia and worldwide for research. It's becoming more difficult. And because of COVID, a lot of research has actually stopped because exactly. um, there's a lot of funding that's been proportioned to, you know, finding the... Um, cure. Cure <laughs> and, and vaccines. And also to get patients in mm. to universities and laboratories to actually do testing. It's difficult. It's, you know, in Australia, we've got shutdowns going on in half of the country and not the other half. Um, most research has completely stopped. Stopped, exactly. So and I think there's a lot to be said, and I'm sure I've said this a lot of times before on this podcast, there's a lot to be said for patients' real-life experiences guiding practice. And, you know, every time I get an opportunity to do um, any teaching, I always talk about the clinical experience or practice-based evidence and not just the evidence-based practice, which is what I was talking about. Like if we rely on only research to um, teach us what to do, then we miss out on all these opportunities of seeing what's going on in the everyday, um, you know, lives of men. And, and that's that's the hard part, you know, just to acknowledge that both sides of the coin are, in my opinion, equally as important. Yeah, I totally agree. And the PROST program. Now, I never don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to ask you, did you start the PROST program before or during your PhD? Well, one of my goals was to have uh, an exercise program delivered to men to help, in a social context, um, them recover from their surgeries and prepare uh, for what it was impending upon them. And 
And knowing that it would take me six or seven years to produce results, I was really adamant that I didn't want to wait that long to start up a community-based program. So the answer is I started them at the same time. Great. Yeah, in And now PROST has a lot of men involved, don't they? And you've also recently brought out an exercise program that people can purchase and the money goes back to the non-profit. Is that right? Yeah, so PROST is a not-for-profit organisation. It's called PROST Exercise 4, which is a number, Prostate Cancer um, Incorporated. And what it is is basically an exercise program conducted by physios and exercise physiologists that rely a lot on the evidence that I produced and also uh, others to show the benefits of exercise, whole body exercise for any man undergoing prostate cancer and also um, the involvement of the pelvic floor exercise training. So we call it the um, prost.com.au website and just recently we had the ability to translate that program that we deliver which is a one-hour program six times a week in um, locations in Western Australia to a full online or at the moment USB program so you can go to Prost and as an everyday bloke you can actually buy for $40 the everyday program which would enable you to set that up at home on your own if you're someone who runs support groups you could get the one that we've designed called for support group leaders or if you're a clinician and someone who wants to deliver programs yourself or for your patients, there's actually um, another um, more complex program, and that has my PhD and all my published papers attached as well. So we've tried to, um, I guess, utilise the COVID times as well of getting access of our program to anyone who might want to use it. So it's just a case of logging into the pros.com.au um, website and going to the online store, and I personally post them out. <laughs> Great. Okay, that's fantastic. So was there anything else you wanted to talk about your research today? or? Uh, yeah, there is a big gap in men undergoing radiation therapies. Yes. So that's probably um, the question I was asked when I finished my PhD from other academics at the University of Western Australia, is to see where we could take this body of work that I'd started further forward at um, UWA. And... I had the privilege of working with um, Dr. Ryan Stafford, who's pioneered a lot of the um, work on transperineal ultrasound of the pelvic floor in men. And I basically said we need to look at when there's radiation patients. So over time, the pelvic floor is one of the tissues that degrades and that causes both urinary and fecal or bowel incontinence over time and also erectile dysfunction and sexual changes like Peroni's to occur. So there's literally no research at all in, in those um, Which is groups. really interesting because often when I see patients before they've chosen their treatment path, they'll say to me, oh, I'm thinking of having radiation because it won't affect my continence and my erectile dysfunction. And I always say to them, it won't affect it straight away like surgery. But there is often a decline over time, and that does not seem to be explained that well to patients. Yeah, Melissa, I think we have to think about it historically. So the um, way things occurred from, like, the 1920s was that we did surgery that caused permanent incontinence and permanent erectile dysfunction. So that wasn't necessarily very appealing. And it, then, you know, over the years, the decades, radiation became an option, and it... And, a lot of the time men had a much shorter time span of 
survivorship expected because their cancers were much, much further advanced. But, you know, bring us to 2020 times, we have all this scanning, we have the PSA tests. So we're, we're expecting a normal lifespan if we catch prostate cancer mm. early. So we now have better options for treatment. And then if you have a curative attempt like what surgery offers or radiation, you have about 80% of patients now in Australia anyway choosing surgery. But then you have now the long term, the guys who are surviving a long time who've had radiation being able to be assessed because they're also surviving longer. Yes. And that's when we see, holy moly, there's um, changes after about three years. And then we probably didn't anticipate that those numbers would be as high as they are mm. for change. Yeah. I've been seeing quite a lot of patients who have got their erectile function back, uh, you know, in the two-year time frame post-surgery. Yeah. But then down the track years later, their PSA has gone up and they've had to have, you know, radiation. Yeah. And then they've definitely gone back to have erectile problems again. Yeah. So the radiation, you know, it's not it's not true to say that radiation doesn't affect these things. Oh, there's quite a lot of um, evidence that shows if you look at patients who have surgery and you look at patients who have radiation, those who have, have um, symptoms at about three years um, post-op or post-radiation actually peak. Mm. So it might take three to five years for the impact of the radiation to fully um, impact, but this also involves the fecal incontinence as well. So part of my, um, I guess, moving forward thing is to get a little bit more education and research into ways that we can um, apply some of those pelvic floor muscle training protocols that are developed and assessments into radiation patients and to maybe hopefully make it a mainstream education process that anyone who has radiation can also have the opportunity to work with someone like physio and yourself to get education on um, cure or, you know, quality of life um, treatments that they can do so that we don't just suspect that it's not going to be an issue because it will be an issue and then it's going to live a long time um, after the radiation therapies and we have new new treatments like the cyber knife which we have in Perth, Western Australia, or stereotatic radiations like surgical radiations that enable us to um, have more localised treatment. But then again, it's a new treatment. We don't know the long-term outcome. Yeah. So prevention is better than cure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And um, if anybody wants to find out any more information about Dr Joe's research, it will be in the show notes. Most of her papers are also in the resource section. I think all of them are on the Penis Project website which is thepenisproject.org and that's all thank you very much for listening thanks so much for all your wonderful questions melissa dr joe here again so i've just presented you a whole lot of information based on the research from my phd for men undergoing radical prostatectomy or treatment for their prostate cancer via surgery well there's another whole population that seemingly gets a little bit forgotten about and that's for men undergoing radiation therapy. So these could be men who choose radiation instead of surgery for a number of reasons and for a lot of the time up until um, most recently it was felt that there was probably a lot less side effects for men um, dealing with radiation versus surgical and we know that uh, most definitely the side effects for radiation therapy in the short term 
are really um, often quite mild compared to those undergoing surgery for uh, radical prostatectomy. But over the years of my clinical practice, it's been really uh, quite um, a significant observation to see many men who undergo radiation therapies end up becoming incontinent and suffering with both urinary and bowel symptoms uh, many years after their treatment. And this is also coupled with erectile dysfunction. And quite a bit of research actually does justify this by suggesting that the tissue changes because of radiation tend to increase over time. And we never really know exactly to what point that tissue change might keep on degrading. Unfortunately, that tissue then becomes less vascular, less stretchy, and overall um, probably less compliant. So it's something like the pelvic floor muscles that control the sphincteral um, mechanism of urine and bowel holding and emptying may just become more and more um, dysfunctional over time. We know that about three years after a radiation therapy, these problems start to become more evident. So in conclusion to my own PhD studies, I was asked, what next? And for a little while, um, it didn't occur to me. But one day I had a patient walked in who'd been one of my earlier prostate cancer patients, and he was now dealing five years later with incontinence of both the bowel and the urine. And then this led me to um, reflect on all the other patients who I'd seen similarly. So the situation is we don't actually know how and if the pelvic floor uh, training programs that we have will actually work for these same patients that are non-surgical patients. And that's where the research is actually lacking. So it's been my, I guess, next quest to try and establish the opportunity to do research in the population group who have radiation because we'd like to be able to offer the same physiotherapy protocols and exercise therapies. We know general exercise helps radiation patients, but we don't know if pelvic floor training helps. So it's been my objective working with Dr Ryan Stafford from the University of Queensland and Western Australia to actually look at this pelvic floor muscle function and the blood flow for men undergoing radiation. But unfortunately, because of COVID times, there has been quite a um, reduction in the amount of monies available for research and monies are obviously being directed in other causes just at the moment. So our recent proposal to gain some funding to commence this research for radio patient, um, radiation patients was un unsuccessful. So in order to commence this research, and while we wait to apply for more research grants, which unfortunately is often a six to 12 month process, we do want to start this research already. But we're in need of one piece of equipment, and that piece of equipment happens to be a special type of real-time ultrasound. And that real-time ultrasound technology is very expensive to purchase. Um, because we have the fortune of um, working with some really helpful medical groups, including Philips, they've actually offered us to buy a, um, a demo probe, ultrasound probe from them and the associated software to help us start this research at a much reduced fee. But we don't have the funds, and although this is an unusual request, um, we have actually now got an option for um, people to donate to our request 
to help this research commence. We're aiming to raise $12,000. We've already raised um, a small amount there, about $4,000, but we're hoping to um, be able to get to the end of it. To, to help this request, I've actually set up a GoFundMe page, and that GoFundMe page um, is basically titled um, Probe for Prostate Cancer Radiation Research. And anyone can just um, go to the link at the end of our uh, show here today to access that or to simply uh, contact us directly through the Penis Project podcast um, emails. So it would be um, of enormous um, gratitude if anyone has a dollar or two to help us um, get this research underway. It will be based at the University of Western Australia and we'll be recruiting men who undergo radiation treatment. So um, if anyone does know um, of patients, men going through radiation that have had um, ongoing issues with continence and sexual function because of those tissue changes, we're here to try and help. And I'd really appreciate if you just um, could even share that link to the GoFundMe page. And uh, we'll keep in tune with uploading uh, more information on the research as we develop it. In the meantime, a big thanks to all of you for listening and um, may our pelvic floor training programs and protocols um, develop with your help. Lives inside me It's been there All of my life Hi, this is Dr Joy. Thank you so much for listening to our program today and we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback, and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email about newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Those dread dark days, I learned to value each and everyone. Of those warm afternoons